Hello and welcome to this BMJ breakfast session at the Nuffield Policy Summit 2019. We're going to be discussing how the NHS can offer staff fulfilling lifelong careers and um, I'd like to introduce the people um, around the table to start off with. Ronnie, can you start? Uh, yes, yeah, so my name is Ronnie Chung. I'm a general paediatrician at the Evelyn at London Children's Hospital. So my name is Claire Lima. I'm also a general paediatrician at the Evelina London. Uh, I'm James Morrow. I'm a GP at Granta Medical Practice in Cambridge. I'm Candace Simonson and I'm Director of Workforce Strategy at the Nuffield Trust. I'm Raki. I'm a paediatric registrar and a research associate at the Association for Young People's Health. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so we're keen to talk about um, how we can tackle some of the problems that the NHS workforce is facing. We're seeing more doctors choosing to retire early, more doctors taking career breaks and finding it hard to return to practice, and doctors at all stages of their career being frustrated by a lack of support around training and development. So how can the NHS do a better job of being somewhere people want to spend their working lives? So I'd like to start with a, a question for all of you, really, about one key thing, however small, that's made a real difference in either your working life or you've seen somewhere else that you think we could do more of. So if I could start with you, Raki. So uh, from my personal experience, I think the key thing has been um, our deanery allowing me to work less than full time to pursue a unique opportunity to work with the Association for Young People's Health. Um, yeah, for me, I think it's it's a lot of it is about um, having some control, um, which is, as Raki said, it's over her career, but also control over your sort of daily work. And so I guess one of the things that we have been uh, involved with just locally in, in our trust has been trying to make time and space for people to for teams to come together to improve a process uh, care pathway whatever it is uh, locally and I think what we found is not only that you if you invest time uh, sort of resources in people and how and helping them develop what you do is you give them an opportunity you make them feel uh, valued and make us me feel valued and Claire how about you? so I'm going to take it to a slightly more basic level and say the kind of thing that I think has made a difference is food um, everything from having junior doctors evenings when they arrive where we have drinks and food to try and encourage other people to come and meet them all the way through to we recently have started a new a campaign called Love Admin where teams from the exec have gone out and spent time with the admin teams taking them <coughs> breakfast or lunch um, and similarly we've done very similar things with clinical staff so exec teams have gone out and prepared and provided uh, pizza dinners or breakfast, hot breakfasts or um, sandwich lunches and it's just extraordinary to watch how staff respond to the fact that someone has taken the trouble to do something really really small but something that says actually you matter and it's the people who are going a change and make this um, an exciting and important place to, play, to work and I think that if you go home from a day like that feeling wanted and rewarded then you're much more likely to stay committed to that organisation but also to the wider system. And how about you James? I think the most amazing recent thing I've seen is one of our registrars Nish Manik who's um, come to us who has co-created the Next Generation GP programme nationally where by in inspiring uh, younger GPs um, in the early stages of the career, she's created a national program giving hope to the next generation that they are important, that they can make a difference, and that leadership starts at all stages of the careers. And I think that's one of the most positive things I've seen in, in recent years about improving um, the working lives of, of, our, of our team. And Candice, you've been working with the King's Fund and the Health Foundation on their workforce report. Is there anything kind of in that or from your other work that you've kind of would like to see rolled out more? 
widely. Yeah, so I think in terms of, um, so obviously I'm not a doctor, but in terms of the work I've done previously, the two most graphic examples that um, strike home to me is first when I did the work on hospital at night, which actually resonates a bit with Claire's point where doctors actually said just give us a cup of tea at night would be nice you know taking the tea lady away made a, a difference but the the pilot sites where we did that work where we were creating really effective teams with strong support for junior doctors that hitherto had not had that support it was really transformative to their experience and the other more recent example is when I sat on the primary care workforce commission going out to the practices that had really made a reality of the more multidisciplinary team and felt that they were working as a team again, though doctors in those practices talked about how different that had made their working lives. And in terms of um, sort of lifelong career development, how do we ensure that trainees at the beginning, people in the middle of their career, but also people towards the end have a feeling that... um, they're progressing that, that the job's still interesting that they're that they're evolving in their career yeah um i think flexibility probably is absolutely key within this that at all stages of career people have different needs and i think recognizing that those needs are different for individuals at different stages of the careers and that people may step up into roles and step back from roles but that doesn't have to be linear, that people can cycle through those at different stages of the career. And we need to make that easy and facilitate it. And also, I think, very clearly identify those who have interests and talents and abilities and provide mentoring and support for those. I think that's absolutely critical that, that in healthcare we can sometimes be very dismissive of exceptional individuals. And sometimes even those who are exceptional need to be reassured and have that affirmed by the organisation, by the system. And do you think that flexibility and ability to recognise um, talent, do you think that's something we've lost or let, got less good at or something that the system needs to learn? I, I think with the standardisation of medical training, we have lost a lot of that historic mentoring, uh, apprenticeship role, um, which it, in some ways is good because we've provided equality of opportunity throughout but all of us need mentors all of us need support and I think by demolishing the firm structure in in hospitals we've lost a lot of that is that something others would agree with yeah absolutely I think uh, flexibility is one of the key issues in all areas I think this would be really good for uh, trainees to feel that they're developing and I think your needs change as you progress and um especially senior trainees, I think it would be more fulfilling if we're more involved in some of this more management and leadership um, work. I I mean, I I agree with um, all of those. I think we also have to remember um, in in this discussion that it's not always just about pursuing other interests and doing other things and and people who excel at, uh, at various other things. Sometimes it's just about taking a bit of time. Sometimes it's about uh, putting things your, like your family and other things first, you know, in, in parts of your life. And I think we have to remember that that pe- flexibility is really important for something which seems quite prosaic, but actually is really important to to people as they go through. I mean, we're lucky to I'm lucky to work in paediatrics where we are much more friendly as a specialty <laughs> around yeah in general, but also <laughs> around um, around flexible working and 
And so I trained flexibly for a couple of years as a, a registrar. That was quite unusual, um, but it was extremely unusual as a man f- f- compared to any of my peers who were not doing paediatrics. It's about 9% of, of, of um, trainees, male trainees in paediatrics at the moment are less than full-time, which is actually a significant number. And I think we just have to get rid of... And, and of course, that, that I'm, I'm pick, ticking uh, the sort of male side as, a, as an example, but we think I think we need to think about um, generally reducing the kind of... St- sometimes a bit of a stigma about less than full-time working. So I would absolutely agree with that, but I also think there's a really important role for senior clinical leaders, whether it's within the medical management model or or outside, to really watch and be very careful about early signs of people starting to feel that the the world that they're working in is, is challenging or difficult and actually doing things proactively rather than we can have a tendency to wait until a problem actually rears its head. So letting people change their working patterns or change the uh, mixture of on calls versus uh, daytime work all of those sorts of things but doing it really proactively and really feeling that a part of being a senior medical manager or leader is actually watching over people and making sure that that's noticed rather than just waiting for individuals to have to put their hand up which can be a little bit terrifying. And do you think that's similar sort of throughout a a career that any of those kind of, you know, that you're not necessarily reaching a crisis and not turning up the next day, that 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 kind of builds and and can be the reason we're seeing, I guess, trainees leave, people leave, not coming back from career breaks, but also older doctors leaving, those similar kind of pressures? So I think if you talk to, to many doctors, they would say that the, the pressure they feel at work is is more now than, than ever. It's difficult sometimes to work out why that is. Um, and I think you're right, it's different at different stages of careers. But I've really started to notice that there are some areas of medicine where the pressure, the intensity of the day work or, or the nighttime work is so extreme that it's not sustainable for a for a, a whole career. So whether it's an intensive care or ED and actually really helping those people to think about how can we build a career from the beginning that actually allows you to be working extremely intensively at the beginning, but then maybe focusing on another interest, education or management or something like that to try and make this a, a proper career path rather than sort of patchwork together. Mm. And James, does that apply in general practice as well, do you think? Yes, I think in general practice we've had greater discretion as to how we work over over many years. And um, But I absolutely recognise the increasing intensity and one of the most common reasons for people leaving the workforce is that they simply find, even if they're working part-time, the intensity of the work whilst they're there is unsustainable. It, it, it's, it's at a personal cost, which is too great. And I think for too long, perhaps, we've sought efficiency gains by rank, racking up the pressure on the clinicians within the workforce and ignoring some of the human factor bits that, that are so important. And we've focused a lot on resilience, the ability to cope in the face of adversity, rather than saying we should be creating a system and structure which actually doesn't require that level of resilience. We should be engineering something that that is reflects a sustainable, aspirational, rewarding, long-term vocation, uh, rather than simply a service delivery unit. And I think we need to refocus and rebalance towards that element of something being fun and sustaining and enjoyable rather than just drudgery. Mm, fun. Fun. <laughs> well, fun. Enough. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Minister for fun. Let's bring it back. Yeah. yeah. And Kenneth. Well, just to <clears throat> underline both those points, we are seeing evidence, particularly through the 
um, GMC surveys and other stuff that gets fed back that burnout is increasing in, in young doctors. And this is something that is not a nice to do about people's careers. That has significant tolls not only on their welfare but on the welfare of patients too so I think you know really important message is that this is something that does absolutely have to be sorted in both their interests. And in terms of older doctors were there things you picked up in in the workforce work on and sort of some of the solutions around that is it about things like in the long-term plan the suggestion you can change the way pensions work to be more like local government to stop people leaving because their pension or is it more about making working lives more engaging is it what's the or, or recognising, I guess, that people can't necessarily do long shifts on their feet all day, that intensity that we've talked about all the way through well, their working lives. I've certainly heard people talk about things that, that are akin to, to what Claire was talking about. So um, framing working nice, particularly for the, for the high-intensity professions that are, are supporting 24-7 um, rotors, for example, that you, you focus some of that work in, earlier in your career and then maybe do more elective type of work later and clearly technology is also offering opportunities for people to work from home for, for some things but I, I think another important message is that it will matter what matters matters differently to different people um, so we don't want to assume that everyone wants to do x and I think um, a an issue for us is that actually do we really have the deep insight into what people do want and um, we make presumptions about it but actually do we really know um, mm. so I would argue that we need to be much more sort of insightful to, to what it is that the workforce wants and then then react mm. Claire you meant, sort of hinted at that sort of listening to what people are saying having a sense of how people are feeling do you think we don't do enough of that there isn't enough with kind of within I guess medical teams, but the NHS team of picking up on people who might be struggling. So, so I think that's probably true. I suppose um, I was thinking more about some of the perhaps more extreme options, which is allowing people to take career breaks, which is clearly very important and in, for the individual, but also for, for the service as a whole, but also does have implications in the, the moment of deciding that for the service. So there's, there's, that, there's that part, but there's also some of the other areas. So we've started at work a number of different initiatives, everything from Schwartz Rounds all the way through to um, having psychologists who work with the staff, particularly after um, difficult events, but just generally sometimes to deal with some of the issues that Candice was talking about around burnout. Um, because actually, if you don't name it and recognise it and actually start to talk about it, people don't know where to go to seek help. And it's also really difficult sometimes to admit some of that at work. Um, so so I think it's really important to have options of different levels, whether it's supporting people in work or giving people the option to take a few months out and actually work out what matters to them, whether they want to come back full-time, part-time, or with a different career focus. And is there enough... Do you, do you think people see that role modelled enough? Do you think they see people taking those breaks and thinking, oh, well, actually, that would be a way of dealing with what I'm dealing with or or even seeing people ahead of them or, or, or colleagues dealing with problems or struggling in the way they are? Do you think people are open enough about that? I, I, I don't think we are open enough about it at all. Um, I think it is really important when people do make those sorts of decisions that we talk about it and that people can see that those are options and learn from it. But... Um, no, I don't. I don't think we culturally uh, 
have quite cracked that yet. I mean, I know I'm guilty of sending emails at silly o'clock in the night, um, and that's not great role modeling. Um, it works for me, but it's it's not great role modeling. Um, and you know, that's a tiny example, but I think we 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 do need to 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 think about what messages we're sending both in what we do objectively, but also the softer message um, that comes from from how we do it. Um, but it's difficult to, to to do busy jobs and to be reflecting and to be acting differently on those reflections. And I think it's a slow process, but if we nibble away at it with things that I've described, like the psychology input, then slowly, 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 it will at least start to change direction rather than um, pretending it doesn't happen and, and leaving it like that. Ronnie, you were nodding there. I mean, just nodding in agreement, really. <laughs> Have we made it, I guess, easier to leave than to go less than full time or to take a break and come back? And is there any sense in that, in that, that you know, you, in terms of how people perceive that, they see people just leaving, going off and doing something else. They don't see people yeah. doing something different and coming back. Yeah, I don't know if um, that was a conscious thing uh, that we've, we've made it easier for people. To, I think, uh, but I think a lot of people just don't recognise that there is a way of doing anything else. Um, if you get turned, if you you know, if you ask your organisation or your training program, I'd like to take this time out to do something else, and they they say no once, they say no twice, then actually sometimes you feel the only thing I can do is to go and is is to, is to leave. So uh, you know, we're seeing kind of in, enormous numbers of our foundation doctors taking time out. Taking, um, I've I've recently met someone who was doing a foundation year five, which <laughs> you know, it's not that's not a real thing now, right? <laughs> Surely, um, but but because we feel as as James was saying before, because we feel like we're channeling people into this um, treadmill, um, I think people, you know, we, we are we will all feel uh, tied to that, and sometimes the only way you can feel like you have regained control like I was saying before is to take some of those steps yourself we need to change the structures to re- to release that sort of flexibility back into the system again and how how might that happen then what sort of so at the risk of um making big big scale changes again I mean I do think the the run-through training program has not done what it's supposed to do um I think it was designed to make workforce planning easier and what's what we've seen is that people have just circumvented it um, and where people are just changing around. And, and so actually what you've done is you've made it harder for people to, to have that flexibility and a bit of choice at the beginning. Um, and, and then you've made it harder for yourself as a workforce planning department um, because, you, because you don't, you're, now, you're now making this completely unpredictable. And you're saying that because people are you know, essentially <laughs> taking breaks to reintroduce that flexibility. Yeah, I mean, I see people, like I say, my, you know, the, the, my, the, the, my, the, the foundation year five I met was doing what I did when I was doing SHO jobs. Mm. They, he was picking out, you know, six months here, six months there to try out things to decide what he wants to do for the rest of his career, which is exactly what we should be allowing people to do. Um, and, and, and he has had to fight really hard to be able to get that and do that himself and build that himself in the face of quite a lot of pressure about um, having to join this 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 program and be there because you know by now you, you really should be making a decision and and it'll look bad on your application form well you know we if we if we squeeze people into this these pathways it, we, we shouldn't be surprised if people break free and we shouldn't be surprised if people if if we, if we, if we find that actually we've got a developing a workforce that isn't particularly happy <laughs> doing doing what they're doing and Candice is that kind of forcing people out of flexibility do you think that's a problem throughout the, the working life? I'm not sure that the, the history holds, but um, we do know that we need more flexibility. I mean, actually, the service needs more flexibility as much as, as um, 
as people do. And we certainly know that the rates at which people are dropping out at that early stage that Ronnie was describing are, are humongous now. I mean, they it's, what, 60% or something falling out at that stage. So, and that has grown from something that used to be sort of 10, 20%, something like that. So we, we've seen this huge growth at that stage. Now we're hoping that they will eventually come back, but um, people may not, and we, we need that pipeline of doctors. Mm. And obviously one of the key things we're talking a lot about here about flexibility and individual um, sort of approaches to things, one of the key things is career breaks, and the NHS at the moment makes it very difficult. We keep refreshing induction, refresher schemes and relaunch them, whatever. It, it, do people have a thought on what more we could be doing better to for people who've taken a career break, either for um, parental leave or for another reason, to, to help them back in? Is it about shadowing for a bit longer? Is it for being more realistic about what people can do when they come back after a period off? What, what can we do better there? Yeah, I mean, I have to declare an interest here. Since Ever since I qualified, I've taken three months off every five years as a career break to go and do something completely, totally, utterly unrelated to medicine. And that's been invigorating and refreshing and renewing my enthusiasm for medicine when I come back. Um, so I think short career breaks like that probably don't need very much. Um, but I think for longer career breaks, it would be good if we had a way of keeping people in touch in a way which was flexible and responsive and not overly bureaucratic. I think that, that would be key allowing people just to maintain currency. Um, and if we could engineer that, then I think that would be, be great. And Claire, do you have thoughts on how we can make it easier for people to take time away from work, come back? So... Um I, I think we have stopped talking as much as perhaps we used to about terms like I guess James was was really talking about, which are sabbaticals. Um, and even if you're not doing something like that, then I know we've talked, um, Ronnie and I and colleagues, a lot about how we use our study leave um, and whether it has to be used purely for gaining uh, increased clinical knowledge or whether or not actually some of that time should be about using it to do other things, whether it's go and work in a refugee camp or do something completely different that, as James says, leads you to be enthusiastic and excited about how to come back. So partly it's about um, how inventive and imaginative you can be and how you use the, the constructs that already exist. But I know I speak from working in a place which is very fortunate to still have mostly full rotors to if we put an advert out we do attract candidates that's not the case um across hospitals across um, this country or, or, or primary care um setups either and so i think the ability to be flexible is very much dependent on the base and that's a vicious cycle because places which can't recruit people are even more overwhelmed so i i, I think possibly there's there's also some thinking that maybe needs to be done about how that's managed within evolving structures whether it's stps or regionality of some sort so that there is a little bit more flexibility for those who really do need it and not just those who are lucky enough to be able to utilize it um i think the other thing we haven't talked about and i know we're concentrating on doctors workforce um but we can't really have a conversation about um doctors working lives or working lives in general for the workforce in the NHS without talking about other professions and I think sometimes we we just sort of think well we there we're a thousand GPs short and so we should just have a thousand more GPs and actually what we need to think about is to balance think about the system need right and think about the work and then work out who can and will do it um, but it means that the the our allied health professionals our nursing teams um, 
can if that means if we if it means that we can support them to work to the sort of top of their license and become um, more um, have have more fulfilled careers themselves, we might actually hit kill two birds with one stone. And I really want to echo that point so much um, and then reinforce the point I made earlier. When you get really effective team working, then everyone feels supported and benefits from that. And the other benefits that um, uh, other staff can bring is actually continuity. So some of the times where you've got teams with other people fulfilling roles that junior doctors say may have historically done, they are there for the long term, which actually is a huge benefit. And they themselves can then put form part of the sort of training support and role. And if I could just ask one more question to the small group and then we'll open it up more for questions. So um, I'd like to get each of your views on whether you're pessimistic because there's so much that needs to be changed. There's such a, a burning platform. There's such a um, sort of a, a long way to go in terms of we're losing staff, the pressures and everything, or whether because we're in that situation, we're optimistic about there's so many things that we could be doing better if we look to other sectors, if we look to other areas. There's so many examples we picked up here of things we could be doing better that actually, you know, we're on a kind of small numbers area where we can make big improvements. There are low-hanging fruit. What, what's your feeling on that? Are you pessimistic or optimistic? Uh, I think I feel optimistic, actually. Um, I, I think there's um, a lot we can do and there are lots of a uh, pocket of um, good practice around the country that are encouraging, um, you know, um, fulfilling careers, are very supportive with career breaks and um, and just looking, uh, n not in pediatrics, but looking at other sort of specialities as well, how they're sort of um, reforming their kind of training programs to be more flexible where recruitment has been low. So I think there's um, a lot we can do and a lot of... Um, uh, upcoming leaders. So, uh, yeah, I feel optimistic, actually. And Candice, how are you feeling about the future? <laughs> <laughs> um, mixed. Um, so I think there there is this fabulous sort of growing recognition of the importance of this agenda, and um, <coughs> lots of people are doing some really good stuff. But I do think there's some very fundamental things that need to be addressed, and Ronnie touched on some of them. I think the way in which doctors' training is managed currently doesn't serve young doctors very well, and it doesn't serve employers very well either. So I think there are some important things that need to be addressed. But yes, let's build on the really good stuff that, that we know is there. Uh, like Candace, I'm a mixture. I'm optimistic about the calibre and enthusiasm and quality of colleagues entering the profession and their willingness to make it a career, a vocation uh, for, for the rest of their working lives. I'm pessimistic at the other end of the spectrum that I think that uh, we haven't yet grasped the drivers which are pushing people out towards the end of their careers. And that's particularly the lack of flexibility and the enormous challenge of a pension taxation system which is actually <coughs> financially incentivizing doctors to retire early. So, so I would concur with all of that and I suppose I would just really focus on two other areas that I think give me um, some degree of, of, of hope or at least some, some light um, for the future. <coughs> and the first of those is there are examples I think less, less in this country than in America of 
um, really thinking about what retirement means and whether it's a total disconnection from the workforce or whether it's actually an opportunity to maintain people's connection just in a different way. And and I do think it's a real shame that we, we do see people retire and then all of that extraordinary knowledge and uh, experience disappears. So there are models in America where um, very senior surgeons will retire and then mentor more junior surgeons and actually some really good data to show that that sort of thing actually produces um, outcome benefits, not to mention that sense of satisfaction for the senior people involved. And the second one is I think I'd be remiss if I didn't bring into this equation of the complexity something that we're seeing in paediatrics, but I don't think it's unique to paediatrics, which is we have increasingly complex patients. We are able to keep children alive today who tend five years ago we couldn't and that brings with it a degree of challenge taking families on that journey um, when we can do things and when we can't do things and so increasingly in paediatrics we are finding that junior clinicians and more senior clinicians do not feel comfortable with some of that really difficult communication Um, and we are seeing increasing breakdown of those relationships and that is leading more and more people to say is this really what I want to do and there are solutions to that we we at the Evelina are very fortunate to have a mediation service um, that both trains people in how to manage those situations but also supports families and clinicians if that happens but that's not widespread and I think we need to think about all sorts of areas like that which maybe seem small but actually if you're involved in that sort of situation can be the thing that makes you decide whether or not you stick with a career in medicine um, or you move on and do something else. Mm. Um, I mean I think clearly there are huge challenges in terms of workforce. We, we kind of know the, the scale of the challenge in terms of numbers and vacancies. Um, I think there are glimmers of optimism and I think the the things that we have to pick up on, I'll go back to the beginning about what I said about control um, and allowing doctors to regain some control over their working lives in other ways is probably the way that we can get ourselves out of this tailspin. And then the other big thing, which is related to that, and we haven't really we touched on it, is um, is a concept of having some joy in the workplace. Um, and I think we talk quite a lot about the difficulties, and but actually there's a lot of joy in what we do. Um, and there are some other ways of increasing that joy that are free. Um, it's not easy, but it doesn't cost anything. Um, and so I think if we can try and um, work on ways to improve that, then that's much better. Thank you. So if there anybody um, in the room would like to ask any questions? Yeah, Martin Marshall from UCL. James used an interesting term earlier, patronage, which has become a very unfashionable term. I actually searched it on Google, and it, it tracks the use of the term over time, and it, it peaked in 1840. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm the oldest person on the table. And it has been down, down, downhill ever since. I think it's interesting because it, it has negative connotations around favouritism and nepotism, and that's why we don't use it anymore. But it actually has positive connotations around support and mentorship. And I think it's really it's fascinating how little... Uh, senior doctors see mentorship of junior doctors as part of their professional responsibility nowadays, and I think I think that's probably because of workload. You know, so many doctors are in survival mode, and they can't think beyond themselves and their own needs. But most doctors who are thriving now and and uh, and perhaps are succeeding now are doing so because they've had patrons, mentors, supporters in the past who've identified them and support supported them sometimes through, through very difficult times. So um, so. I think uh, this is a big wake-up call to the medical profession. We need to be better patrons of our of our junior colleagues. James, do you want to? 
I didn't realise I was quite, quite so far out of date at 1840. <laughs> I, I, I have to, uh, for, for those listening, I'm the oldest doctor sitting around the microphones uh, by, by a long way. Um, I, I think you make a very good point there. I think you know, uh, mentoring, um, uh, patronage, I think those do very clearly underline something that all of us need. We all, If we're to succeed, all of us need to find someone who believes in us, whether that's in personal relationships, in a working environment, in career progression, finding someone who believes in you is the most important thing. And we are very bad, I think, at doing that because we have standardised so much of the assessment that a lot of the humanity has disappeared from it, a lot of the warmth. Uh, we had a medical student who came through and I sat down on one side and said, you know, I think you are an exceptional student. Has anyone ever told you that? And he said, no. I've done all the tick box assessments. Nobody's ever told me that they think I'm exceptional. Um, and we do need that level of connection, people saying, identify something that I think I can help you develop and progress. How can we take this forward? And I think that, that the ability to do that is something that we should celebrate rather than repress. And you're quite right, we, we shouldn't make it a negative idea of favouritism uh, and needing a sponsor but actually we should take it in a very positive connotation of saying how can we as individuals support other individuals in a way that enables them to fulfil their potential. Great. Yeah. Anita Chasworth, um, and I'm from the Health Foundation. One in five of our consultant staff from a BAME background and almost a third of all doctors are. And um, despite that though, what we see is that um, there are a number of issues where the NHS is not providing equality of opportunity, so bullying and harassment rates much higher, um, opportunities for progression much lower, representation at the most senior levels of the professions incredibly low, and if we're to have fulfilling careers for doctors, that must surely mean fulfilling careers for all doctors, um, whatever their uh, gender, ethnicity, and the thing we, other characters who we don't talk about at all really in the NHS is disabled staff as well. And I wondered what people's views were about what the NHS needs to do to turn that round, because I think most of us would find that shaming. And yet, actually, it's been very persistent. Um, so I, I think Anita's completely right that we have to have um, a variety um, of opportunities and, and they have to be relevant to the individuals involved. I suppose to your point on, on disability, um, um, I... Um, we'll speak very personally. I had um, a, a rather life-changing accident last last year and spent quite a lot of time um, in a wheelchair and so got to see the world from a very different perspective. And I actually have to say that I felt unbelievably fortunate to work in the NHS, um, not so much in terms of the access that I was able to um, to, to, to take advantage of at that time because I wasn't able to work then but the ability within the NHS to flex to my needs when I was able to come back I think is, is remarkable and um, we, should, we should, really shouldn't forget that but that doesn't mean it goes far enough there are many, many things that we should think about and do differently um, and I, I think it is very much a hidden question that we don't talk about enough so um, I think it's something we don't focus on when we choose medical students. It's something we don't talk about as we support medical students with disabilities through through their careers. Um, and I, I have to say my experience last year has given me a renewed vigor to, to, to keep an eye on that, but it's, it's a really crucial question. And anybody else want to come in on the diversity issue? 
Yeah, I, I think, um, uh, and, and I agree, I think there definitely needs to be more sort of representation and um, it's sort of, I guess, um, empowering the, you know, whether any staff from a BME, I think um, empowering them early on because I think sometimes there could be some cultural differences that people feel are sort of, uh, maybe they're not going for the senior positions, uh, something's hindering them back, but I think, um, and I, I'm not sure how exactly you do that, but I think there definitely needs to be a sort of increased focus on um, empowering people from all backgrounds to sort of um, be able to go for these positions. <coughs> so hello, I'm Toby Hillman, I'm a chest physician at University College Hospital and been listening with great interest to all of the different points which you've raised. Coming back to one thing which Claire and James were talking about, which was sabbaticals, I think they're a fantastic idea, and I can imagine how having three months off every five years is incredibly sustaining over the course of a, a busy clinical career. One thing which I would wonder about, though, is where doctors in many organisations have to overbook and double up clinics to be able to take their two weeks of annual leave in the summer. How can a service running at such capacity issues have the flexibility to give people three months off service even if it's planned with those with the inability to sort of flex because of the lack of workforce that's there and then the other point which I just wanted to raise about technology it was mooted as a, a positive benefit of being able to work from home and have that flexibility I would just be wary of that as being a benefit because actually, as Claire describes and many other people have experienced, work simply never stops and you just continue working at home. And I think uh, and the final point which I'd like to make is that a clinical-only career is probably not sustainable over a whole working lifetime. And we need to be honest about that. And we were talking about moving out of sort of the acute sort of side of things and being able to go into slightly sort of uh, more elective work as you progress through a career. But I think, you know, in general practice, I think it's recognised that six clinical sessions is probably the maximum that's sustainable over a working week. Um, and certainly there are lots of people exceeding that uh, out of service needs. And I just wonder how, with the workforce issues we have, we can have the flexibility that is demanded for all of these different great ideas. Someone coming on that, Ronnie? <laughs> I'm not sure which which bit to come in on, Toby. <laughs> no, I I mean I think um, I think you're right. I would go back, I suppose, to um, the point I made earlier about how we use the workforce overall, um, and how we make sure that actually the people that um, that 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 the work that doctors are doing is work that only doctors can do. Because um, I think if because I think a lot of my frustration and my busyness, and I'm sure that reflects in everybody else's, is um, is waste actually. Where I'm just I'm running around doing things that I don't need to do, and some of that may be related to technology. Some of that is related to you know sort of uh, the burdens of documentation and all those things that we talked about, administrative tasks. And I and I think that we we've kind of sleepwalked our, into this position. Um, we. We've just taken on a little bit more, done a little bit more, done a little bit more, would be that clinical stuff, or, or as I say, some of this non-clinical or, or stuff that doesn't have to be done by doctors. And we've just sleepwalked into it. Um, and at some point, we sort of need to take a step back and say, actually, do we need to do all of those things? And if we don't, how do we make a system that allows, frees us to do the things that we, only we can do? And then I think we have a, an opportunity, potentially, to be able to to spread that out more evenly and to, for us to then do all the other things that you, you talked about in terms of flexibility and 
Um, I, I, you know, that's not an easy thing, and that's clearly not an overnight solution. But I do think we have to take a long look at at that in general about what it is that the roles, um, the NHS workforce roles, um, are at the moment, and, and whether they're the right ones. Do you think there's sort of needs to be an honest conversation about because some of those barriers have been sort of professional protectionism about doctors not not wanting to give things up and concerns being raised that are these people qualified to do that and things like that. Do you think? There needs to be much more honesty about the, the, the how you have those conversations, how you hand over work, how you stop doing things, how you find what, who's appropriate to do things. Do you think we've not had those conversations properly in the past? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's probably no doubt that, 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 that there's an element of that. Um, and some of it, quite rightly, so that it is important not to simply give up work that I don't want to do anymore to somebody else. Um, I have to make sure that that's, that, that, is, that is done in a, in a, in a, in a way that's um, safe, that leaves patients safe. I think you know we talked. Um, there's been lots of talk recently about um, kind of how we adopt and whether we adopt that sort of, sort of physicians associate model and how we make sure that that is a that is done in a um, in a sensible um, way, which means that patients are uh, continue to be safe and get safe um, high quality care. And I think those conversations need to be had, um, but it doesn't it shouldn't stop us from thinking about doing that. Mm. Um, and I think some of it, you're right, is probably about us being a bit protectionist about things, um, and we just have to stop thinking about it like that. Because actually, the, the NHS workforce cannot we we can't simply just train more doctors or buy more doctors. It's just, that's not going to that's not going to happen. That's not going to work. So I just think we have to be be we have to wake up to that and say actually this isn't going to be sustainable. And Candice, have you looked at some of these additional roles in the, in the workforce work you've looked? So absolutely, and um, uh, just sort of underline what Ronnie said, that there it is very clear that there are significant opportunities to redesign both, well, crucially, the pathways of care and then the workforce that supports that pathway of care. And that goes back to Ronnie's point about start with the work, really understand what that work is, and then running alongside that pathway is technology. And actually, if clinicians, as we heard yesterday, are involved in designing the technology that supports that pathway, then you can get a real win-win out of it. And it can be very satisfying um, for everyone and allow everyone to work to the top of the license to use that expression so there's some huge potentials there and um, as we were talking about um, yesterday when you look in deeply at those pathways what you get out of it is not only sort of jobs that are satisfying for people but actually you start to really get to the needs of patients and expose needs that are often not met on the traditional pathways so there's some real win-wins that come out of this because clearly sort of meeting patients needs ultimately is what clinical care is all about and if you can see yourself doing that in a, a very meaningful way then that is a very good thing for everyone thank, thank you um, um, my name's Anne Hagel and I'm from the Association for Young People's Health and I am absolutely not a doctor I have nothing really to do with the medical profession and this is really a fascinating conversation because just in response to what you were just saying there Ronnie I, I was thinking but I feel that I'm a researcher in the voluntary sector and I'm constantly doing things that I shouldn't be doing and how much of um, what is happening here 
is actually specific to medicine or is this just modern work? And in which case, are there other places that we can look? And Candice, I don't know if you have thoughts about other professions or whether in, in some of the work that you've done, you know, you mentioned the airline industry, I think, at one, one stage, Claire, um, where we can look for other people who've solved this in different ways and more imaginative ways in other domains. I think there's a point there as well, do you want to come in? Uh, yeah, so um, I'm fairly loud, so if I can. <laughs> um, uh, Anita Donnelly, um, consult physician by background and chair of the Mid and South Essex STP. So we started off these discussions right at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of need with food and drink. <laughs> and I'd like to kind of just reintroduce the fact that medicine is such a wonderful career and so exciting. And what I want to hear from people is how we engage in the way that perhaps the Q Fellowships in the Health Foundation, Tony Young's Clinical Entrepreneurship Scheme, actually harness the creativity that sits within the clinical workforce to design and create their own future. It's taking from your point, Candice. It's so important because so much of the discussion yesterday about workforce was so depressing because it concentrated on patch planning for what we know we haven't got at the moment, rather than thinking about you know, what the future will look like. And I'm going to mention a word that hasn't, I don't think, yet been mentioned very much, which is the patient and the citizen. So the social construct in which we deliver health and care is going to be so different now. We need a whole set of new partners, and we need to go about it very differently. So I just wondered what the various generations sitting around the table thought about that. Right, yeah, we're almost out of time, so just have a quick response to that. Um, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, I think when I have people come and do work experience with me who are thinking about medicine, I had one a few weeks ago who I was extolling the virtues of, of medicine as a career. I absolutely adore this job. It's completely wonderful. And she looked at me and she said, you know, you're the first person who said that to me. And, and that broke my heart because um, it is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful role. But we do have to recognise that if we are going to maintain that, we have to liberate our young clinicians to be able to attack some of the challenges they face full on. We have to support them in that. And simple things like having opportunities to talk about things that matter to those individuals outside of medicine are really important. But I think we can, in the medical world, paint quite a negative picture and we should be out there singing the praises of this role much more loudly. Yeah, I, I think it's the most amazingly privileged vocation um, and career. Um, I'm looking after a delightful chap at the moment who's who's dying at home, who was evacuated off the beaches at Dunkirk. Mm -hmm. I'm the only person he's spoken to since the war about what it was like to be on those open beaches. And that level of trust and privilege is something that is phenomenal that we mustn't lose and, and must continue to celebrate. But fundamentally, I do think we need to, to recognise the changing needs. And some of the people within my team I'm most proud of are my advanced nurse practitioners and my healthcare assistants. They're people that we've helped develop and nurture their career. They're the most phenomenal resource for our patients. And we are, in, we're, we are enriched as a team by broadening out from just being doctors. And I think that's, that's one of the key things that we must celebrate as well, is the, the privilege of medicine as a vocation, but understanding that doctors cannot do it all alone and that we, we need to embrace those who also share a vocation about caring for the patients, for the individuals, for the citizen. Great. Thank you very much. Well, that's been a fascinating discussion, something around improving flexibility, allowing people to, to find their own path, something around 
in showing how wonderful a career in medicine is and celebrating it and the fun and patient contact and something like that could also be important. And so thank you very much.